Welcome to Fierce Amazing Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Erin Martin. I'm a physician, writer, speaker, mentor, and mother of three. I believe that this lifetime is short, health is precious, and relationships gift us with the juiciest memories. I love thinking big, asking the hard questions, and catalyzing others to do the same. You are invited to listen and learn to the ways amazing people are showing up in this world and truly thriving, and helping others to do the same. Together, we will explore and enjoy conversations about what it truly means to thrive and how we can live fiercely and on purpose, in our truth, with our tribes, in health, and in the ways we react and receive. We will give airtime to our inner wisdom and learn to honor our integrity. Refreshingly in your face, this podcast will inspire, motivate, and propel you to create something new, wonderful, and fierce for your life. Because we hold the power to create an amazing life lived fully alive and to change the world. Welcome to episode number 11 of Fierce Amazing Radio. Today we are continuing our series on creating possibility with a very special guest who we will be talking to about the importance of voice. My guest today is Ms. Shamia Fagan, the newly elected Secretary of State for the State of Oregon. Now, Shamia is a very dear family friend. She and I grew up together, and we continue to support each other as we move through this amazing life with all of its ups and downs and twists and turns. Shamia was born and raised in rural Oregon, and like me, she grew up poor and with only small opportunities, but she did not let that stop her. You are going to hear her story, and it is so inspiring. Shamia went on to attend law school and currently is an employment attorney in Portland. Her legal practice focuses on employment challenges faced by working parents, like pregnancy discrimination, medical leave, sick leave, pay equity, and sexual harassment. Shamia served in the Oregon House of Representatives from 2013 to 2017 and currently serves in Oregon Senate as the chair of the Housing and Development Committee, and she also sits on the Health Care Committee. Shamia is recognized far and wide as a fierce advocate for Oregon workers, and now as the newly elected Secretary of State, she speaks to us about the importance of voice for every person in creating their own possibilities. I know you are going to love this conversation as much as I loved having it. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, let's get to it. Enjoy. All right. I want to welcome State Senator from Oregon, Shamia Fagan, and current Secretary of State-elect. I am so glad that you are here. I'm so excited that you're here, actually. Welcome. Oh, I'm happy to be here, Erin. It's good to see you again since we grew up together. That's fun. Yes. So um, Shamia is a dear, dear family friend um, from childhood and has grown up uh, with my entire family. And I'm like beaming, if you guys could see my face, just how like super happy and so proud I am. We are literally recording this on November 8th. So just yesterday, it was announced that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris had won the presidency. And the election is just, you know, brand new four or five days ago, right? And so you have just been elected Secretary of State for the state of Oregon. And I just want to say congratulations. That is thank you. Yeah, it's it was fun. It was different to run a I've run for office many times. And it was very odd to run essentially from my house in yoga pants. There was a lot of very important meetings. I remember this one moment, my aunt who lives with me saw me walk into the living room and I was in a very nice um, blazer and a coat, you know, nice silk shirt blazer. And I was in polka dot pajama pants. <laughs> and she goes, what are you doing? I'm like, oh, I go, oh, Attorney General Holder is doing an event for me. <laughs> but I was like, Attorney General Eric Holder. But I'm like, I don't have to wear stuff. I'm polka dot pajama pants on the bottom, nice press suit on the top. I was good to go. So <laughs> It was a lot of fun. Wonderful. Well, uh, how has it been for you in this kind of aftermath of everything? How are you coming through all of this 2020, which has just been kind of a storm of things? How does that uh, play into, you know, your life and how you have been just your, your vision for things? 
Well, I, as you know, I'm a single mom. I've got two kids, an eight-year-old son and an almost four-year-old daughter. And so I think I'm, I've already been a lot of a homebody. I'm a, in addition to being a state senator, I'm a civil rights attorney and I've run my practice remotely for about five years. I've let my legal assistant work from home. So that part of it, doing stuff by Zoom, I, I hosted podcasts, so I've done interviews like this. Doesn't feel that different to me, but the daily reminder to me that we're in this unprecedented time is my son, you know, opening up his Chromebook and doing second grade from our kitchen or from his bedroom. That's the part that continually reminds me, like, oh wow, this is really, really different. And so I've been collectively grieving, like the rest of us, right? Recognizing there's moments where I've overreacted to something, and then I'll reflect back later and go, wow, why did I overreact so much? Oh yeah my baseline of stress is so much higher, just like everyone else in the world, literally the world, because we're all dealing with this deadly disease that is just out there that's, that's you know, silent, that's invisible. And so I've been trying to be aware of that, give myself some grace, give folks around me grace. And also in the moments that I can find something to be grateful for, you know, my son is a big athlete and our, you know, close friends are big athletes. And I noticed recently that, this is probably the most carefree summer my son is ever going to have in his life. Unlike being off to camps and in sports games and everything, he just basically woke up every day in the summer at either my house or his dad's house and just had all day to play, which is a summer I've enjoyed. I'm sure you enjoyed those. But in fact, we enjoyed them a lot together when you were at your grandparents' house. Always in the um, summer, yep. Yeah, but like my son doesn't normally have those kind of summers because he'll go to summer camps and be on sports teams. So I've been trying to appreciate the ways in which COVID has changed stuff for at least this year that we probably will never recreate. That's such a great point of view. Like so many of us probably aren't even thinking about that. I think at the beginning of the pandemic, a lot of people were like doing things that, you know, we were all kind of sequestered and they were doing things that they'd been putting off and thinking, oh, this is kind of the silver lining. I'm finally going to get to clean out the closet or clean out the garage or whatever. Um, but not realizing those things, like you just said, like this, this might be the most carefree summer that my son has before like the rat race starts again, essentially, right? If life gets back to normal. Wow. So just last night, we were listening to Kamala Harris make her first speech as vice president-elect and as first vice president of in this country of a female, of a minority. Um, it's, it was just so amazing. And she was talking about this being a country of possibilities and that every little girl needs to grow up knowing and hoping that they see that this is a country where anything is possible. And so... I, I thought last night as I was listening to that I, and knowing that I was going to do this interview with you, I was like, this is so perfect to kind of lead into what we're talking about because your story is so, so much that. And I could say that about, you know, my story as well, but your story, like what you're doing is so um, amazing. And I just was hoping that you would share that with us. Well, sure. And, and I love that you talk about possibility because the thing that I took away, I mean, so much I took away from last night's speech, but also just, it's not like possibility is just there. Opportunity isn't just there. It's there because people create it for other people, that people build systems and community to create it for other people. It's not just there. Obviously, we see in other countries, people don't have opportunity and don't have possibility. And so I just feel, you know, the center of my story is just on gratitude to people in my community, like your grandparents, who were my pastors of the church I grew up with in those little towns, because my you know, my dad was a single parent. I have two older brothers. So I was growing up in a house full of boys. In fact, I got close to your grandma because my dad knew I needed some female influence as I was in about second grade. So I started spending weekends at your grandparents' house just because I needed kind of a woman figure in my life because my mom battled addiction for most of my life. Um, and we just kind of in and out of our lives. And she experienced homelessness in Portland. I was living in little towns um, east on the eastern, more rural part of, of Oregon. And that's why I started going to your grandparents' house, needing that. And um, so I think about creating possibility, I think in part, you know, because of your grandparents giving me that, you know, that stability and that love and, and um, you know, the people in my schools. And my mom was a, a great person, you know, she's passed away now, but she was a great person, but just battled addiction. And um, at the time, obviously, I didn't understand that that's more of a health problem than a choice problem. So it was really hard as a kid to not understand that and 
I remember one time we went to visit her when I hadn't seen her in probably two or three years. My older brother drove us there and I was about 15 and we pulled up to a big house because she had told us to come visit. She had previously been homeless and pulled up to this big Victorian style house with a big wraparound porch. And she greeted us and then walked us around to the front steps. But instead of walking up the steps, she dropped to her hands and knees and she crawled under the porch. And then she invited us into her home. And we crawled under the porch behind her, of course. And I remember she had a sleeping bag unzipped. So we weren't just sitting on packed dirt. And she showed us a box that she kept with her no matter all of her travels in and out of shelters, on and off the streets. She had this box that was full of pictures of us and letters from us. And so when I hear you talk about possibility, I think in that moment, I think of my mom keeping that box because I think she wanted to always remember that an ordinary life was still possible, that it was within reach. Mm -hmm. And when she did pass away, which was October of 2014, she'd been clean for almost six years and was living in the first house she'd ever owned. And she passed away from complications from a routine surgery. And the minister who performed the homily at her service, I think captured her journey perfectly in a way that I think some of your listeners might connect with. The minister said, Trish, that was my mom's name. She said, Trish reached the place of an ordinary life, just an ordinary life, a job and a house and a dog. But it didn't just happen to her. She fought for it with everything she had in her. And that goes back to what we were saying about, you know, fighting for possibility and people fighting for you for possibility. And um, and that's just, you know, that's what got me into public service from the school board to the Oregon House, to the Oregon Senate, and now to the Secretary of State's office in Oregon is is having that desire to put the systems in place from a state level to help people have possibility, whether it's education funding, healthcare, housing stability, addiction treatment, um, workforce training, small business support, all of those different things that folks need in place to be able to realize and actualize that possibility. Right. And and we talk about, especially like in politics and, and everything, we talk about all of those things that you just mentioned as very specific things. And I think it's really easy as the public to be thinking of those things and saying, yes, we need someone to work on housing. We need someone to work on education and all of those things. But in the context of a community and in the context of a society, those are the things that are necessary for someone to realize their dreams and for somebody to step into a completely new and different reality, a new possibility to create for themselves. Because the possibility has to be created first, right? It's a vision, right? And the way that you see yourself, then you have to have the, take the actions and you have to have the the resources, if you will, or the things there that are available to you to, to utilize. And um, I think that one of the things that is so maybe misunderstood a lot of times about people who are in public service is that many of them are very, like, they're doing it for really great reasons. Like, we're not talking, you know, a lot of politicians may have, you know, a bad reputation or get the bad rap because they become career politicians and and things become more about power and ego than about serving mankind. And the things that you're talking about um, and knowing where you came from, they mean a lot, they mean a lot to people. And I think that's one of the reasons why talking about your story and giving voice to that is so powerful. And people come from all different walks of life and they may not give much, you know, airtime or thought or, or voice to that journey and how important that is. How important was that for you in in, in what I mean is how important was voicing that story for you and bringing that story along with you in your journey to arriving where you are right now? Well, later, very important. Of course, at the time, I, I mean, I've had folks that knew me in high school when I tell that story about seeing my mom under a porch, they're like, oh my gosh, I had no idea. Like they were my best friends in high school. I was on sports teams with them, but that was at the time, something I felt very ashamed of, very embarrassed about, not only for me, mostly for my mom, like I didn't want to tell people that about her because I loved her so much. And I didn't want to 
bring her to make her look bad. And that's why it's been easier to tell her story once it had a happy ending. It would have been a lot harder to tell that story if she had died from an overdose, which almost happened a couple of times. But the fact that she ended her life um, having achieved that sense of ordinary life, that stability. But for me, that's really not only how I got here, but why I got here, right? Like that's the reason I ran. And I, when I first ran for the school board, you know, you talk about possibility being created. And I think that it's so many little forks in the road along the way, not just for me as an individual, but for other people about me, I was a pretty, uh, you know, I've always been kind of a funny kid, but I was a pretty disruptive kid too. Um, and I remember in fourth grade it was a really tough year. I think that was the year that I first became aware that my mom, um, you know, did drugs and was a fourth grader who's in the Nancy Reagan's dare program. That was just a mm-hmm. horrifying thought. And it was a really tough year for me. And I was really disruptive and acted out a lot. And I had a fourth grade teacher in this tiny little town called Dufer, 537 people when I lived there. And I, I see that he has saw a fork in the road. He could have taken a very kind of harsh disciplinary approach with me, but he approached it with empathy, realizing, wow, this kid's got a tough life. He knew obviously that my dad was struggling. And, and so he invited me to join an after-school chess club. And that was the way they kind of offered an olive branch. And I joined this chess club, found time to really focus my energy into something. Instead of going home after school, I'd go to this chess club with the teacher and a few other students. And by the end of that year in fourth grade, went from this dinky little town I lived in to Portland, Oregon, and won the, the Oregon State Chess Championship. And there was that moment when I was walking out of the parking lot with this honking trophy and my older brothers who were usually picking on me and they were hoisting my trophy over their heads and chanting, my sister's the champion. And I can still see it because that was this, I just remember this impression that I had about like, Oh, like I don't have to just kind of be disruptive because I'm upset about how my life is. Like if I, I can compete with anyone. Like I just have to have, you know, to have that somebody to coach me. And so I just think about that fork in the road for Mr. Wagner in fourth grade Instead of just, you know, sending me to the principal's office or trying to get me expelled or whatever, because I was very disruptive. Instead, he invited me to, he gave me opportunity to learn something new, to channel that energy. And so I told that story so many times about the educators and the teachers that kind of just kept making, when they had that fork in the road, they chose the, the side that gave me more opportunity, that gave me a chance to kind of, to whatever energy they saw that I had. Because I'm sure as you interact with me now, even though we're adults, like I haven't changed all that much in like the, no, you you know, 30 years and we've known each other. And so I'm pretty much the same person. And and so, but when they had, you know, they saw that energy in me and they, when they faced that fork in the road, you know, at times when I was making their life difficult, they would choose that opportunity, encourage me to run for student counseling, encourage me to plan something or take an extra course or join a, a sports team. And I just feel so grateful because I don't know where I'd be today if those folks in my life had chosen, you know, the other side of the fork in the road. And I know that for a lot of people out there, you know, they didn't have that opportunity that I had because of, you know, race or gender identity or uh, their life circumstances or the country they were born into or the language they speak. And so I just feel so grateful of the folks who made those decisions to, to keep always nudging me towards opportunity. Yeah. Wow. Things that we don't know, the the impact that we have on people, on young people, on anybody that we come into contact with. I I, I bet you Mr. Wagner had no idea what would what would become of you. Um, and I think probably as an educator, he may have just had really high hopes and hoped that that moment in time that he had you in his circle was gonna be enough to keep you moving on to the next person that would take you. So that's just yeah. such an, that's just so amazing. You probably Let's also ha- hope that I would stop disrupting his class. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I think in the short term, that might've been the hope. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Possibilities for Women is a charitable organization that stands in the possibility that women can create a world where all women can thrive. Our current initiative, Women for Women During COVID, is a scholarship program for working women already enrolled in college who have lost their jobs due to COVID and are facing the possibility of dropping out or postponing their educational goals because of lack of funding. We believe there is good enough for everyone. 
and we believe in paying it forward. Empowering women by helping them reach their educational goals is one of the most powerful, proven ways to uplift and change the trajectory of a woman's life. And in the wake of that, an entire society, a nation, and the world. Want to know how you can help? Go to ocf.betterworld.org to participate in our virtual raffle for two great e-bikes and vacation homestays in desirable locations. Find out more and get involved at possibilitiesforwomen.org. Well, let's talk about voice. And as you know, the newly elected Secretary of State, that's kind of like one of the biggest things that you're tasked with, right? Is making sure that everyone under your or in your state, right? I wouldn't say under your jurisdiction, but you're not law enforcement, but like has that voice, has the opportunity to, you know, vote or have their say. And so um, it sounds almost like a really general, broad question. And like, well, of course it's important, but why is voice important? Like, why? How? Why is it so important? How has it been important for you? And why are you? Why do you fight so hard for it? Because without it, I you know everything is so predetermined, right? Like, unless somebody can speak up about their lived experience, nothing's ever going to change. Because the ideal is that people speak with a voice and there are folks in powerful positions to make, to hear them and then to make changes, right? I mean, as little as Mr. Wagner taking me to the chess club instead of the principal's office, but as big as people, you know, as what we saw from Joe Biden and Kamala Harris last night saying, I've heard you, you've spoken, but he also spoke to the 70 million people that didn't vote for him, that voted mm-hmm. for President Trump and said, I hear you too. Like, I hear your voice. Your voice is not screaming into the void that I hear your voice too. And when you hear Republican Governor John Kasich talking on CNN yesterday about all the you know more uh, well-known Republicans that coalesced around Biden to help him win and saying, hey, like we were part of this. Like our voice still needs to be heard too. And then you hear folks on the, you know, the young people and the BIPOC communities that also turned out in record numbers for him saying, hey, you got to hear our voice too. And so I think that it's important, which is why on just a basic level, one thing that has characterized my legislative service is just making it easier for people to vote. And I know that sounds so simple, but in a time of massive voter suppression, I just think it's so bizarre to have the people that get elected making policy choices to make it harder for people to speak about who should be elected, right? Like it's just this horrible, so we're like, no, wait a second. We're the people that have the power to make it harder for people to be heard because we're afraid we'll lose our power. And, um, and that's why, you know, Oregon was the first state to just automatically register people to vote if we knew they were eligible before somebody would fill out one of those forms, it would go to the DMV to verify that they were eligible. And me and a group of voting rights advocates and then Secretary of State Kate Brown, who's now Oregon's governor, sat in the room about seven years ago and said, wait a second, the DMV already has all that information. Why don't we just register everyone we know is eligible unless they ask to opt out? And, you know, folks who are Jehovah's Witness, for example, often don't want to be registered to vote. And there's other reasons. But most people just don't go through that process. And so it's like, why not just make it? And then we have mail-in voting in Oregon. And we have drop boxes. And we have prepaid postage. Like, why not make it as easy as possible to get people's voices heard um, as compared to, you know, people waiting in line for nine hours on a work day and taking the day off work and losing a day of pay to go vote. And so I know that it's it's simple, but it's it's simple, but it's not easy, if that makes sense, because clearly mm-hmm. across the country, it's a lot harder for folks to have their voices heard. Then that's why I think that Oregon has been a leader on a lot of things that really just affect and help everyday people, you know, passing paid sick leave and raising the minimum wage because people have spoken about the things that are affecting their lives. And when you let them speak through their ballots, then people in power are more likely to hear them and make changes that make their lives better. Right. I think that that is so true. And I'm also wondering about as you're speaking, I'm like, I'm, this sounds so strange, but it's like as hard as making sure that everybody has a voice and can vote and can, and put their, their wishes, if you will, out there to the elected officials of our, our country or our states or or any government that we have, it almost on a more personal level, sometimes voting seems almost easier, if you will, than 
people, women, minorities, anything like that, that actually need to, on a, a personal or even on a smaller level, to have a voice, to actually like engage in dialogue or to tell somebody I'm not available for that, or this is what I want. Like that's such, for some people that's even, it's even harder because for voting, you can, you can register for a vote and you can kind of do it in the privacy of your own home and nobody even ever has to know there's no confrontation. Right. And I just uh, wonder for you on, you know, if we talk about it on a more personal level, on a personal power level, how does, you know, obviously having your voice is important, but wondering like for you, how did you find your voice? Like even on a, on a personal level, I mean, you went to law school, you uh, became partner in a law firm, then you decided to, you know, run for Congress and then Senate and all of that. But at some point before all of that, you have to have at least some inkling of how to have a voice and, 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 what it's useful for and how, how to do that. And, and one of the things about, we talk about creating possibility and voice and where those things come together is really like, that's where the freedom is, right? When you can, you know what your past is, but it you're not letting it dictate what your future is. And you're deciding to have a voice about, about your life essentially. So um, it, it's so pertinent on a big level and at the same time, on a personal with our level with our relationships and in our life, when we're not, you know, protesting or talking about politics or things that are, you know, we feel a little bit more liberty to discuss. Um, I think voice is um, oftentimes lost, especially for women, so or minorities. So I'm wondering if you have um, any thoughts on on like. How, why that that level is so important, how you found your voice. Yeah, I mean, I think that I feel lucky that I grew up in a church that, um, yeah, I think that ordained women. I think there's something about seeing women in leadership roles mm-hmm. that, um, you know, women like your, you know, your grandpa was the, your papa was the mm-hmm. pastor of the church I grew up in, but your grandma was the pastor's wife. And so she would speak and there was other really powerful women. So I think I got those, I think and I- She was ordained. Oh yes, yes she was. That's right. And my stepmom uh, is yeah. an ordained minister, and so I think that that I feel fortunate in the community that I grew up in, kind of already seeing women in power. I think for me, just because my personality is very just, out, I mean, I grew up in a house full of boys in like rural towns, and so I think that I and just my my mom uh, was very outgoing and bold, and so I think my challenge, which is a different challenge than a lot of women, has been. Um, to not have my voice because my voice, I, I naturally am inclined to speak quite literally speak. And then obviously figuratively, but to not have it be silent because I'm loud and I talk fast and I'm, I'm intense and I'm passionate. And I tend to kind of be the center of attention a lot in rooms as a kid and to how to not, well, that's not how girls act. That's not how ladies act, but how to kind of avoid the folks trying to silence me, which is interesting that I would then get into a profession where literally you're like doing polls and focus groups about like, do people like Shamia when she talks? What do people think? And, <laughs> and, and you know, it's, it's, I've now been in office long enough to know the difference between running and governing. And I feel like when I'm finally governing, I have a little bit more of a, I can kind of relax and feel like I can truly without as much self-consciousness speak and use my voice because when you're running, it's constant this dance of like authenticity plus just trying to like get to the 50% plus one. And even in this last campaign, we did a focus group, which was fascinating. They showed two different groups of kind of self-described independent voters, a group of um, people identify as men, people who identify as women and separate separate rooms. They showed them videos of me talking to my opponent talking, who was also a woman, but it's much more, you know, just kind of a you know, soft-spoken and and boy, watching those women watch me, they were like, oh, I love her. She's passionate. She's my girl. I so identify with her. And to a person, these dudes hated me. <laughs> they were like, oh, my God, she's so aggressive. She's so intense. And it was fascinating. They watched the exact same videos. And all of them identified as politically independent. So there wasn't any like in the videos, I wasn't even really talking about things of like partisan substance. 
it was telling my story. And just the way I told my story was such a turnoff to these men. And these women were like, would rally behind me even more. And that's such a bizarre situation to be in, to be trying to continue to have your own authentic voice at the same time, knowing that it's a huge barrier to certain people to even hear what I have to say because they don't like hearing literally my voice, literally and figuratively, like literally my voice they didn't like. And then figuratively, the way that I present myself. Um, and so that's just an interesting, that's been my challenge, I think, in my life, which is some women have to find their voice and some women have it and have to constantly wrestle with people wanting to quiet it, literally and figuratively. And that's been more my journey. Yeah, that was the, the other question I have is like the struggles of keeping it heard. Like, so you find your voice and you feel comfortable with self-expression and, and then you have, you have this realization that, wait a minute, not everybody wants to hear what I have to say. And if they are going to listen to it, then they're going to tell me that they didn't like not just what I said or how I said, but how I sound and what I, you know, all of that part that comes with it and the struggle of keeping it heard. How do you, how do you, as a woman in, in a man's world, essentially, um, politics is definitely still a man's world and I, and I'm a doctor, so I, I live in a man's world too. So I know what that is. How do you keep relevant and heard in the, that type of a setting? You know, part of it is building coalitions and finding the things that I share in common with some of the men in that man's world in power. Um, you know, again, growing up in rural Oregon, a lot of the legislators in the more rural part of the state were men and not all, but but many. And, you know, trying to find those connections. Um, but I think also just coming from a place of empathy in that while I, as a woman, have certainly told people things they don't like to hear, certainly for me as a white woman, particularly in the past several months as, um, you know, after the death of George Floyd and the, um, the racial reckoning, I certainly have recognized the ways in which my, the black community or my friends who are black have tried to say things to me and that my white fragility came up as a defensiveness and not letting their voices be heard because I didn't like what it said about me and my privilege and recognizing um, that I can do a better job there, not just as a woman, but as a white woman to say, oh, wow, you know, when I use this term or when I do this or when I say this or when I react this way to when somebody says that something hurts them, um, that if I can learn to be a more empathetic listener, then I'm hopeful that the the men in my life who maybe don't initially lo love my voice, literally and figuratively, can learn, you know, I, that I can practice empathetic listening to other folks whom I have oppressed, even if it wasn't intentionally, and then hopefully have, you know, that practice, you know, replicated for the folks listening to me and be willing, you know, to have the, the you know, defensiveness pop up. Well, I didn't mean it that way. Well, it's not always how you mean it. Sometimes it's how it's received, particularly when you're in a position of power. Um, so I think that it's been a, a dance of feeling indignant about my voice being heard at the same time, recognizing that I had to be a more empathetic listener to folks in my life who are being indignant about their voices being heard that I haven't always heard without defensiveness. Right. And I think that all of that applies, you know, to, I would say like real life, but like life outside of career. Right. And what you're describing is connections and communication and relationships. So if we stand on our soapbox and we can stand on a soapbox in our career, um, I'm in leadership where, where I work too, and I can stand on my soapbox, but I can also get off my soapbox and go sit down with someone and really hear them and really have a genuine interest in them. And I can also do that with my 14 year old <laughs> on my soapbox, or I can do it with my husband on my soapbox, or I can be more interested in making progress and making connection and, you know, having that type of, of, relationship so that the struggle of keeping myself heard is really almost more of a, a struggle of self-expression and how do I express myself and how do people, how do people 
receive me or experience me. And then, so you do the, you do the focus groups, right. For, for your (laughs) campaign and stuff, but like, when do we get to have focus groups in real life? Right. Like, um, there is a practice that, uh, we did in one of my leadership um, courses that I took that was like, you actually had to go like the people that were really important to you in life. You had to go to them and, and like have really candid conversations with them and ask them, how do you experience me? Like, and be very willing to hear everything that they said and really ask them, like, please don't censor. I really want to know, how do you experience me? And if you guys could all see Shamia's face right now, she's doing this, like, this, like, <laughs> look, you know, it is. Also writing it down. It's super it uncomfortable. Question. Yeah. It's super uncomfortable. And you will learn a ton. You will learn a ton, not only... Like we, we can think, oh, that could be positive or that could be really bad. That could be negative or positive. You, people will tell you things that you didn't know about yourself. And they, from that point of view, but also like you'll hear people say things to you about how they see you in a way that you, most of us don't see ourselves in that positive light. How powerful people say that we are, how, how, um, inspiring we are to other people uh, on very like personal, personal levels. Cause they give you specific examples, you know, and, and um, I, I asked one person who is a, is a dear friend uh, about it for, for myself. And, and she said, you know, when you're passionate about something, Aaron, like you can, you can get anybody to follow you. But the shadow side of that is when you're not happy, you can get everybody to follow you there too. And when that, that hit me in the chest, like a ton of bricks, like I was just like, wow, um, how important that the way that I use, when you know, you have a voice, the way that you use it and (laughs) our country right now is like the, the biggest, most in our face example of that, right? right? Like our leader, our, our like (laughs) supreme leader, if you will, and the way that the, the voice has been used to just create divisiveness and how also a voice of reason and, and healing can be brought in and, and what that can do. So I, um, yeah, if you've never done the, like, um, the asking people, how do you experience me? What has, you know, uh, particularly people who are, are very close to you and that you feel like you, you, they don't have to censor so much. You can learn a lot. So uh, try that one out, Shamia. <laughs> well, uh, what you've done and described is much braver than what I have to do with running for office because, you know, people, there's internet trolls and they'll say things about you. That I was almost laugh because I'm like, you literally don't know me. So it's easy to dismiss it when it's people who only see me through the negative ads that are out there about me or some article they don't like or some decision I made that they don't like, they don't agree with. It's so easy to dismiss it because like they don't know me. They don't actually know me. But mm-hmm. that's a lot more courageous to ask people who do know you. Yeah. And I think I want to do this because I've always been, I'm very, always been very self-reflective. I journal. I mean, I do the Gretchen Rubin one sentence a day journal. Have in fact this one right here is I'm almost five years in, so I need to uh, or three, yeah, five years in, so I need to get a new one soon. Um, but just one sentence a day, every day on the same page. So on your November eighth, you're journaling on the same page as November 8th of 2019 and 2018. So you get to see that journey and that reflection. Mm-hmm. And there's this, I forget what it's called, but there's a quadrant that people talk about where it's like things you know about yourself and things that others know about you, mm-hmm. things that you know about yourself that nobody knows about you, things that you don't know about you and that others don't know about you. And then there's that fourth quadrant of things that others know about you that you don't know about yourself. And I've always mm-hmm. been very obsessed with that. Like, oh my gosh, well, how am I, how are people observing me that I just don't see? And so I realized how scary that question is because I'm very obsessed with, you know, all the reading that I do and, and, you know, podcasts I listen to about trying to know myself. It's that quadrant that scares me about things that others know about me that I don't know about myself. And that's literally exactly what you're asking people. Yeah. It's literally exactly what I'm asking. And, and, um, I'll say that wasn't my idea. That was an assignment that I was, (laughs) I was given, but it is, you know, if you're, if you're a leader and the thing is, is that we're all leaders, whether we're leading our own lives or we're leading our families or we're leading a state or, or even more than that, we're all leaders. And to understand how people experience you, um, 
is a way to, because we're, it's all, you know, building relationships and all of these things that we're talking about is, is so important. And we don't know what we don't know. And it's crazy to think like, oh, you know, in our forties or whatever, how is it possible that I might have strengths that I don't know about? And people will shine the light on them for you. I guarantee you. And then it's like this whole nother like dimension of yourself that is, new to you. And it's a whole nother like tool. And, um, it's actually very exhilarating as you learn that, like you, you get this like exhilarating, excited feeling, um, of like, I just like, how often do we actually learn something new about ourselves? Like when was the last time you learned something new about yourself? Can you remember? Well, I'm a candidate. So I learned that. <laughs> I mean, it depends <laughs> if it's something actual about myself or like some version of my record on TV saying I voted for what? But yeah, I mean, it's different when you're in politics because you literally do like opposition research on yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, so I learned a lot about myself, uh, you know, in terms of like objective information about myself. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I continue to read. I mean, I just finished reading um, Bell Hooks, The Will to Change. And like, I feel like it's going to change how I parent my eight year old son. I'm like, oh, there's just, so I'm just constantly in that state of learning, but uh, it's scary and it's hard. And that's, I think, why I journal a lot because I, I want to see that journey. It's like, this is an analogy that's only easy to, to express with parents. Um, but it's like, you know, you give birth or, birth or you adopt a baby and you're looking at that little newborn for the first time and you just are so overwhelmed with love for them. And then like seven or eight or 14 years later, you look back on those photos of you holding that new baby or embracing that new child. You're like, I didn't even know them yet. Right. Like you just, how did I have that much love for them? I didn't even know who they were yet. You think of all the experiences you've had with them since then. Like I didn't even know them yet. And that's how I feel when I journal and look back on my life from five years ago. I'm like, Oh man, I thought I all had it all together. And five years later, I realized I didn't even know what was going on. I mean, the literal example is like, we were all living carefree this last February before we realized that like two months later, we'd all be wearing masks and schools. Would be, I mean, you know, but just that, that bliss of what you didn't, like you said, that you don't know what you don't know. And that's why I love journaling so much. I have since I was in fourth grade. Um, with my first journal, I drew Garfield on the cover. Um, but it's just like that ability to know yourself and to know that when I'm sitting here today, I'm a, so aware that there are things about my life and myself, I don't even yet know, but that as long as I keep moving forward, you know, like you said, finding voice and also listening to other people's voices that will have an opportunity to learn those things and hopefully accept the things I can't change and, and change the things I can. Yeah. And to me, that's so exciting to, to like what you just said was so, so perfect. I'll have to go back and like put it in quotes or something and make an Instagram post on it or something, but like (laughs) to know that at this moment, there's things about myself I don't even know that I don't know yet. And like this, it's this un- continual unfolding of myself. And for for me, that sounds really exciting. And for a lot of people, like that's really scaring. Like they don't want to know about themselves because that means that they might, you know, see something they don't like, they might have to change um, or they may see something that's exciting and they might have to do something about it, <laughs> right? Like that yeah. means I might have to actually live into who I really am. And, um, that's an uncomfortable thing for a lot of people. So all of that is, um, you know, for most of my listeners and, and stuff, that's why they're here. Um, because they're, they're ready for, for that like self unfoldment, uh, to happen. So it's just so beautiful. I love that. And one of the things that, um, you know, I talk about with, you know, my, my listeners and, um, some of my private clients is like the creating possibility is really like about what shifting, what it means to be you. And that if you want to be kind of the captain of your own life, you've got to be, you've got to become very intimate with what's the driving force behind your decisions and identifying your core values and then leading your life from those values, because that's what sets you up to be able to create, whatever it is that you want to create. And that's where the freedom comes and creating the possibility of who you are right now, like without, you know, no matter what your past experiences or regrets or mistakes or whatever. And that's really what it is about shifting what it it means to be someone, because for most people, our past is how we define ourselves, right? We are the cumulative you know, some total of our past experiences and not looking at ourselves in the future, what we can become as 
something completely new every time and we have the say and we can do it and it doesn't matter. Like for you, it doesn't matter that you came from a small rural town in poverty in Eastern Oregon and that your mom was a drug addict. You made something, you made, you've made choices along the way, like all those forks in the road that you're talking about. And so I'm wondering, like we, as we talk about core values and, and how we decide to make the decisions for our lives moving forward, what have those been for you and what are they for you, you know, now as you, you're moving into this new role and you're a mom and you're all of these things, how do you keep coming back to what's really important? Cause I'm sitting here, it's a Sunday afternoon, we're doing this and you know, you and I both have minimal makeup on, <laughs> you're wearing a, <laughs> a, a green hoodie um, with Ruth Bader Ginsburg on it. And, you know, we're, we've made choices to be here and have the freedom to do this. And I'm wondering how, what those values are um, for you. Well, I, I am a, from a practical level, I'm a huge efficiency productivity person. So I try to make the most, I've um, one of the best books I've read, I've read a lot of those kind of productivity, how to make the most Mm -hmm. of your time books. But the best one for me was uh, Lauren Vanderkamp wrote 168 hours, which is how many hours are in a week. And she actually go through this whole audit of your time and to realize that if you actually are intentional about your time, there's so much time in 168 hours. And I like her the best because she's a, a mom. I feel like a lot of the productivity books are written by like older men that don't have kids at home and they can control every minute of their day, which is just mm-hmm. not the truth when you're running a family. Um, but so that's my, on the more practical level. But I, I, I read S- Stephen Covey's book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, every year. And there's one quote that, I mean, I, there's lots of quotes I love, but the one that I always come back to, because you're talking about choices and creating, is that, you know, what sets us apart for him from animals is that, you know, animals have stimulus and response, stimulus, response. But that in us, in our humanity, that there is a space between stimulus and response. And that space gives us the freedom and power to choose our response to stimulus. And it's really in those choices where our ability to change comes from. Now, for so, some of us, we're not even aware of that space because we're so used to stimulus and response, whether it's, you know, just how we've, but how we've operated, whether it's addiction or certain habits that we're in. Some are good, some are bad, right? Creating good habits sometimes is trying to reduce that space between stimulus and response, right? Like I'm going to go exercise in the morning. I don't want to have to think about exercising a bunch. I want to have, you know, alarm goes off that stimulus and response. But for so many of those, you know, we can't control the stimulus. Like you talk about so much of our lives, whether it's our past or our current life, right? We have this pandemic sweeping the entire world. That's a stimulus that we can't control but we do have the power to control our response and to kind of, whether it's through meditation or mindfulness or faith or religion or whatever it is, like expanding that space and experiencing like true mindfulness of that space. Okay. There's a stimulus and calling it that and then, okay, here's my space to choose my response to that. Even if my response for the past 39 years has been the same thing, I still get that choice every time. Um, And that's that I, when I first read that quote, probably, seven or eight years ago, it just was really eye-opening. It was, it was revolutionary for me to say, okay, where are all those places in my life that I can recognize stimulus and that I can use all the tools that are out there, whether it's you know mindfulness, meditation, to recognize every time I have that space and to choose how I respond because that's how you know growth happens. And mm-hmm. that's been, that's a bit of a mantra for me. I have that quote written multiple places in my house and in my life. And I read that book every year to remind me but I can't control my circumstances. A campaign is a great place to learn that, right? I can't control what my opponents are saying about me. I can't control a lot of what goes on. Um, those are just stimulus, but I can always choose how I respond to those. And that's that's that power to, to choose mm-hmm. and grow and, and become. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it sounds like if we could, you know, call a, you know, put a name to that value that that is really like, it is not just freedom to choose, but it is. I would say almost like freedom to be who I say I am in the moment. Does that resonate? I always try to put Definitely. a, I always try to put a, like, how do we, how do we package that one up a little bit to like make it, you know, um, kind of a bullet point, but freedom yeah. to choose, um, 
your reactions is a is a huge value. I think that a lot of people don't even think of, and I'm sitting here like you can see me kind of looking up to the ceiling because I'm like, I don't think I've actually, I, that's such a, an important thing that I say, like we always have the freedom to choose. We always have the freedom to choose. And I haven't actually identified that as an actual value. And what I hear you saying, Shamia, is it absolutely is a value. How valuable is it that a person can have the freedom to choose their reactions to things because otherwise it's just the tail wagging the dog, right? right? We're at the whim of our emotions, which as we all know, don't always serve us very well, right? We can get really right. worked up about things. So that's beautiful. I love that. I'm gonna have to think about that one a little bit more. Wow. Well, I'm so blessed to have you here. And I feel like there's so much more that we could talk about. And, but I, I want to just thank you for being here. And, um, I think you're again, just a beautiful example. I wish that I could in some way make it possible for people to know you (laughs) at the level that I, I know you and understand you. And, you know, maybe, you know, it's 30, I don't know. I think it's like 33 years or something like that. I've probably known you. I could pa- can I package that up in a, in a, like a 45 minute podcast so that people could really <laughs> understand like the depth of sincerity and the depth of caring uh, that you have as a person and the, the voice that you are for people who don't have a voice. And I just um, think that it's absolutely beautiful. So I want to thank you for being here and just say like, keep keep making the possibilities for for those that that can't and i know you will because that's your that's your service right and as they say in in buddhism that's your dharma and i think mm-hmm. you're doing a beautiful job and i can't wait to see what unfolds for you and for the people that get to um, be the beneficiaries of the work that you do so thank well, you so much shamia thank you so much i'm so glad i'm so excited to start listening to your podcast like i said i listened to Brene brown and others uh, every every week. And, and this is great. I'm so glad that you're trying to empower women. And uh, and as you said, that empowers that empowers men too, because women can take different roles in life, then it creates space for men that don't want to be the dominant leaders who want to be, you know, maybe the quiet nurturing person or the, you know, that creates space for everybody to be who they are. And so I'm so grateful for the work that you're doing it just taking a different approach to being a doctor, uh, treating people's whole self as opposed to just certain symptoms. And so I'm, I'm impressed. I'm excited to see you and, and uh, I'll look forward to listening. Thank you so much, Shamia. You got it, Aaron. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Fierce Amazing Radio. If you enjoyed the show, make sure you subscribe so that you'll automatically get new shows every week. And I would love it if you left us a review. We are on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Breaker, and other platforms. I'd also love to hear from you. You can find me on Facebook and Instagram at Dr. Aaron Martin, or just head to DrAaronMartin.com and you will find them all there. You'll also find additional resources, videos, and information to uplift and inspire you. Fierce Amazing Radio is the elevated conversation for those who are fiercely creating an amazing life. And I'm honored you've tuned in.